Good afternoon and welcome to the second episode of the Chainergy Coffee Company podcast. In this episode, I would like to touch base on what's going on with Brexit without entering into the politics, but just trying to understand a little bit what might be the design behind the impasse that the Johnson government has essentially provoked in the talks with the EU. And uh, in a second segment, uh, I will give you uh, some advice on a book that I, fa- I found to be extremely helpful at the beginning of my career, and I think should be um, a good read for most people who are interested in energy markets. So let's get started. Brexit. As it has been all over the news, it seems like the, the Johnson government would like to renege on some of the provisions of the so-called divorce agreement that has been reached with the EU negotiators. That has provoked, as usual, we are in the civilization of outrage, a lot of outrage, and a lot of talk <clears throat> about the politics behind this decision, which passes many people, even in the UK. My point of view is that uh, Since uh, we're talking about countries, countries don't have friends, they have interests, it's actually fairly understandable what the UK is trying to blame that. At the end of the day, it has been clear that one of the reasons that behind Brexit, other than reducing migration to the UK from EU countries, was to turn the United Kingdom in a sort of... Uh, European Singapore. And there is a lot to, to that, because uh, if we look at the geography, the UK is strategically placed between Europe and North America, which are still major trading partners. It has a well-developed port infrastructure, so it could easily play as a, a node in a wider logistic chain, even though the port infrastructure of the UK is not nowadays comparable to what we found on the continent in, uh, in the area around Rotterdam or in, in Hamburg. But there are some good deep water ports in the UK. And uh, the UK, on top of that, has a very well established financial industry, which is an essential part of the infrastructure that underpins modern international trade, and especially commodity trade. I'm thinking about oil and gas, but I'm thinking also about other commodities, which at the end of the day is the vast majority of, uh, of goods that are traded internationally. So <clears throat> the UK has, has some distinctive advantages in that area, and of course it is in the interest of the UK to extract as many concessions and a, a, a trade agreement with the EU that is as favorable as possible. Now, the sticky point in this, uh, in this negotiation is essentially two provisions that affect mostly Northern Ireland. Now, uh, the story is that to avoid a hard border between the Republic of Ireland, Heire, which is part of the EU, and Ulster, which is part of the UK, a sort of strange mechanism has been put in place in which Ulster will be essentially a territory in between, part of the UK but still somehow 
part of the European Union physical good market. It's important to remember physical good because in the full negotiation there is a huge sticky point which is market for services of which banking and financial services and London is the European hub, it's a global but also European hub for financial services are part. So at the moment uh, what would happen is that if goods enter Ulster from the EU do not need to have a custom clearance, they would need a custom clearance as soon as they cross uh, the Irish Sea and go to the mainland UK, still an island, to Britain, so let's say to Great Britain. Another sticky point would be state aid. And state aid, that's something that many people outside the, uh, this profession don't understand, but state aid is a major part of what can hinder international trade. And that's why within the European Union, the rules on state aid to firms are so strict. Because by aiding a local firm, essentially, a government can obtain a barrier to trade which is as effective, if not more, than the traditional tariffs or non-trade barriers, think safety standard. Because the reality is that to limit imports, which is very often a stated goal of certain protectionist governments, there isn't only the way of putting different standards, think sockets. I mean, plugs for sockets are different all over Europe and are different between the United States and Europe and it's different frequency for the electricity or even cars. In the same car to pass the safety regulation in the United States needs to be updated in a way that it makes it almost uncompetitive to produce car in Europe for import into the United States. So true is that BMW for example has a fairly substantial car producing plant within the United States. So <clears throat> state aid is essentially an international trade weapon. And uh, within this agreement uh, what the EU would like Britain to do is to apply the same rules to firm, uh, firms that are in Northern Ireland as firms that would be in the Republic of Ireland. So state aid would need to be reported to the European Union and evaluated according to the rules of the European Union. Now, why the UK government would like to renege on these promises and what might happen? On the why, the common consensus is that uh, is uh, bluffing, is essentially a nice take bet that uh, Johnson is doing to ram uh, down the throat of the European Union a better deal for the UK, which is understandable, morally questionable, but understandable. Might also be that it's a cold calculation under which the benefits of reaching a no deal outweigh the benefits of reaching a deal. Or, if you prefer, that getting an old deal Brexit might actually be not as bad as getting a deal where there are limits on what the UK might do in the future in terms of state aid and in terms of custom requirements for goods uh, transiting the, the Northern Ireland territory. Essentially, 
putting a strain on the relationship between the Republic of Ireland and its Northern Territory, the cost of which, according probably to Johnson, is not so high. It's a risky bet, and it's not given that it, it's not a given that is a bet. But what might happen actually, in terms of foreign trade? So what what would happen is essentially that the UK might be incentivized to create a regulatory framework and uh, the conditions that uh, would attract to the UK shores a certain kind of businesses. I'm thinking about a lot of the commodity trading houses that were in Switzerland. Now in Switzerland, for a number of reasons, commodity trading has been on the downward spiral because the condition that brought certain trading houses in Switzerland in the 90s and in the early 2000s are not there anymore. I'm thinking about taxation, I'm thinking about banking secrecy, plus the fact that Switzerland is essentially extremely expensive. The cost of, let's say, a back office in Switzerland is easily two, three times the cost of the same back office in other European countries. In fact, the tendency is to keep the front offices here and move support staff, let's say, near shoring. Now, for the UK, <clears throat> I can see a window of opportunity to reattract due both to the geographical area. I mean, at the end of the day, the UK is very well placed to work both with the United States and with Europe and eventually even to Asia <clears throat> along the 24 hours, so to trade 24 hours. The UK has the banking infrastructure that is getting more and more complicated due to European Union regulations. As a matter of fact, and that's one of those things that people don't think about, but is a, is a fairly big risk in terms of uh, um, the ability of banks to finance international trade. The new regulations and capital requirements that have been imposed in the EU to banks make trade finance, which is uh, the oil that lubricate international trade, a lot less attractive to banks uh, on the continent. In fact, a lot of the European banks are exiting financing trade. And that will have some serious repercussion for the commodity trading industry because lacking finance in an industry that requires to immobilize, even if not for long periods, substantial investments in working capital might jeopardize especially the existence of smaller, of smaller operators. I mean, we're probably going to see a further wave of consolidation in the industry. Not every commodity trader, or not even every commodity user has the financial shoulders of the Glencore or the Trafiguras of this world, which can use their own resources to prepay and to finance trade. So that might spell the end or, let's say, a very existential threat to smaller operators, which manage to stay in the business due to their nimbleness. But if their access to credit might be curtailed, that would create a serious existential threat on the continent.
Now, of course, that doesn't apply to firms in the UK. If uh, the UK government would go back to its light regulation touch and allow banks to take some more risk in this area, it's a no-brainer for people in the commodity trading industry to consider the UK as a much more attractive jurisdiction compared to, let's say, Germany or Switzerland or France. There is that. The other point is that uh, when we talk about um, international trade, a no trade agree, a no, no deal Brexit would be a problem for companies that have supply chain across the channel, but would be a bit less of a problem for companies that have a more let's say, less value-added activities, so that really move goods around rather than produce goods around. And since manufacturing in the UK has been in the decline for the last few decades, probably the UK government sees an opportunity in this kind of service-oriented economy. Also because European businesses might see an advantage in having this kind of Singapore of the European continental shelf in the UK and lobby themselves to avoid punitive tariffs, to avoid uh, the UK being completely cut out of the continental infrastructure, continental business landscape. And hence, that's where I read the bet of Boris Johnson. What happens for people who are operating in the industry? For small commodity traders, there are already a lot of challenges. I've seen it myself in my coffee trading business venture to find proper financing and to find the reliable financing. That's the most important part. So, eventually, a no-deal Brexit, which might open the possibility of a better and more business-friendly landscape, in the UK might sound as an appealing proposition. In terms of uh, the workings might actually make in the long run things easier because at the end of the day then the border would be the border between countries Republic of Ireland, United Kingdom. This if we assume that there aren't political upheavals in the UK itself, considering that, for example, Scotland is making rumors that might seek another independence referendum. The problem that I see with this approach, other than the moral side of, uh, of being a reliable partner in trade negotiation, is for me the uncertainty. That's where probably the cost is not well calculated, both on the EU side and on the UK side, because businesses need certainty. Businesses nowadays have the means and the ways to adapt to a lot of possible adverse outcomes. Everyone essentially has its risk management framework and look at the risk, regulatory risk, market risk, country risk. And I have a little bit of proud in this that this has been uh, um, something that was early adopted, uh, especially in the oil industry, and that's one of the things that actually the oil industry could teach 
to a lot of other industries, risk management and, and safety, absolutely. So <clears throat> businesses can adapt, however, they need certainty. I mean, a little bit the problem has been also with the Trump tariffs. I don't have honestly an opinion on whether Trump is correct or not in slapping tariffs on the European Union and on, on China. Of course, I would like a world without tariffs, but that's more of a, an utopia than, than reality. Not only without tariffs, but without also other trade barriers, such as state aid, etc. But it's in the arsenal of weapons that a sovereign government, and we're talking about sovereign legitimate government, have to advance the interest of uh, its own people. The problem is that uh, the uncertainty that is uh, placed on the businesses will have an impact on economic prosperity and also on international trade. So whereas in the long term, my point is that uh, both under the current regime, if it's in the end confirmed, or under a no-deal Brexit, the, the impact would not be so catastrophic, meaning that businesses, especially businesses <clears throat> who don't have a supply chain across the channel, will somehow adapt. At the end of the day, it's in the interest of everyone. The reality is that if uh, uh, the uncertainty is prolonged, the economic fallout will be bigger because investment will be postponed, which means less consumption, which means less economic growth at the end of the day. So that's my two cents on this, uh, on this uh, topic. In this second segment, I would like to advise you to read a book. Reading a book is always a good idea, but this book is a book that has influenced a lot my passion for uh, the oil and gas industry first and for the international trade of goods uh, a bit secondarily. This book is essentially a must read for anyone who wants to understand what really is the price of oil and what are the forces that really shape that number that is repeated ad nauseam by the international press. The book has been published uh, in Italian under the title C'era una volta il prezzo del petrolio and is translated in English under the title Understanding the Price of Oil. It was written by a gentleman named Salvatore Carollo, a gentleman I had the pleasure and privilege to work with during my time at ENI. Now I need to make a disclaimer, I'm not connected with ENI, I'm not connected with Mr. Carollo, I just really value this book, which has been an eye-opener, really, on what are the dynamics of the oil markets, even though they're changing, and what has been the history of the flow of uh, liquid hydrocarbons. And liquid hydrocarbons are an, an essential part of the international trade of physical goods. According to some estimate, roughly half of what is uh, transported seaborne around the world every year is represented by oil and oil-related products. So it's really, really big. It's something difficult to wrap our heads around. And there is also a lot of misconception about how really the OPEC can affect the price of oil and what is the 
effects of market forces and financial forces. Now, to understand this, this book is probably the best starting point. I can take a, I cannot really think of a better one. It starts with a nice history of how the business model of oil com of integrated oil company was built, which was essentially import oil from the Middle East, refine it in Europe, keep in Europe fuel oil and every day still it's as diesel for use in Europe and export to the United States, which was the rich market gasoline or another high value added product. This has changed first with the uh, Suez crisis of 1956 and the wave of nationalizations in, uh, in Arabic countries and in Iran. And now it has evolved in a completely different way with the US becoming uh, thanks or thanks to shale produ production a net energy exporter. It has changed because essentially no one uses really fuel oil for power generations anymore. Plus fuel oil has been essentially killed off even as a fuel for ships, which was its last <coughs> usage due to the regulation. I have an, an article on my blog, chenergy.net, on what will happen to fuel oil. And it's going to change yet again. Where the fundamentals that are enumerated in this book are still very much valid. It sheds a light on how the benchmark, because the price of oil that we refer to is a benchmark, is not the real price of oil. No one really pay that price. It's not like selling a kilo of apples. So how the benchmarks, benchmarks are constructed, because there isn't one benchmark. The most widely used is Brent, but there is also the WTI, which is the benchmark for the Western Hemisphere, so for the US and most of the Latin American production. And it's a good read, not only for people who want to get closer to this industry and closer to the business, this business, it's a good read also for people who are conscious citizens and who want really to understand what is the effect of certain policies and of certain geopolitical trends and also of certain financial decisions on the price of oil and the effect on our daily lives. So my advice is to order on Amazon or at your bookshop this uh, book. It's extremely pleasurable. It's an easy, to, an easy to read publication and it will really add some knowledge which was developed by someone who was a true and tested expert on the field. This is everything for today. I thank whoever had the idea to tune into my podcast and as usual please feel free to comment and reach out. Wish you all a nice evening.